And now it's our opportunity to expand our consciousness in new and amazing ways. Our own Reverend Patrick Cameron is going to come up and stretch you to a new idea. And Catherine McLeod is going to do the opening treatment. Good morning. Welcome. Are you, anyone here for the first time? Okay, good. I won't scare anybody today then, I guess. Uh, I'm a, we're going to sing a song, and I invite you, if you'd like to stand with me and do that, you are welcome to. If not, please stay seated. And then Reverend Catherine McLeod will do our opening prayer, our opening affirmative prayer. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every Spirit, one Spirit. Is in this very room, in this very So in this very room, I too lift the veil, remembering that there is one, one perfect, loving presence, one spirit, always present within me, within each person, and within all of life. And so today I open my heart, I quiet my mind. And I receive the gift of this wonderful message. This message that we are one. That life itself is a gift. And so I treasure this gift, my life. And I invite you to do that with me as we claim all of the treasures of this beautiful world. And so I know that this morning unfolds with ease and grace. And I am inspired to step into a bigger idea of my life and who and what I am. I invite you to claim that with me as together we say, and And so so it is. Thank you, Reverend Catherine. Beautiful. Thank you, Brown. I was inspired um, listening to the announcement from Reverend Tammy Banting about our gala, which is really a a wonderful event, and I hope that you... uh, Decide to be there. Choose to be there. But I've decided to go ahead and auction off the silent auction. I'll auction off. Uh, I will do all of your snow shoveling for the months of June, July, and August 2011. Because so. you never know. We might get that freak storm. So you want to make sure you're covered. In fact, at, at the, um, I went in to check uh, my email between services. I ran into the do a few things. And, and one of my peers had sent me a list of... of uh, puns for educated minds and it's, and it's all these little I guess they're jokes 
But uh, I wanted to share with you that uh, two silkworms had, had a race. They ended up in a tie. <laughs> They're all like that, so I'm just letting you know. that not the Internet amazing? Been using... Um, I'll give you one more just before I get going. <laughs> a grenade thrown into a kitchen in France would result in linoleum blown apart. And they just keep getting better. Anyway, been, uh, the last few weeks we've been talking about using the parables of this amazing teacher, this charismatic teacher that 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago, started to transform the consciousness of the planet in a way that we hadn't seen prior to that. And in all of these, we've been using the parables from the Sermon by the Sea. And in all of them, the reference is to the kingdom of heaven in, the, in these particular parables. It's interesting to note that in the, the gospel, and, and they're written about extensively. And so I've gotten a lot of really good feedback from all of you because it, it's helpful, I think, especially for those of us that were immersed in, in, in a form of Christianity and then the bridge to what Ernest Holmes would say were Christian and more. And, and I think that his brilliance was to articulate at, a, at a, what I think is a very deep and meaningful perspective of what the life of that particular teacher, avatar, and um, amazing individual represented. But in the Gospel of Mark, he is, is quoted 13 times referring to the kingdom of heaven. In Luke, 28 times. In Matthew, 38 times. And so it's a, it's a repetitive theme that I think is very important. And the way we would interpret the kingdom of, of heaven is a state of being. It's a state of awareness. It's a state of consciousness. La, the, two weeks ago, I talked about the, the broadcasting of seed, uh, sowing the seed and, and the challenges with the seed finding a place to grow effectively. And in order for the seed to grow effectively, we had to be permeable. The, the, the soil had to be prepared in a certain way so that it could take a deep root and be nourished and, and, and spring forth. And last week, I used the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the tares, T-A-R-E-S, is a form of weed that grows, looks very much like the wheat, and you don't identify it as a, a weed until it matures, and then what it does is it starts to, to choke the wheat. And so that's the first two weeks ago was the idea of our, our consciousness being uh, receptive, that a fertile ground for something new to be grown in. This last week was around the idea that as we start to do this work mindfully, we'll have, to, we'll have weeds in our garden of consciousness that will grow up along with the things, that, the new crop that we've planted. And so our opportunity, as, as cautioned in the story by this uh, brilliant teacher, is to just chill out, to identify what's going on, and to, to learn how to cut our losses. So don't, don't panic. And so the, the reference there was, shall we harvest it immediately, or shall we, uh, what should we do? And there was sort of a panic among the, the hired help. And he said, just relax. Let it grow. We'll harvest it. We'll cut it off. We'll throw away the terrors. We'll bundle them up, and we'll burn them. And, and then we'll plant a new crop which is a great metaphor for consciousness. It's a great metaphor. We start to do this work in consciousness, and then we, we have certain things we long for, and yet we'd like it to be pristine. And many times there's, there's weeds in our consciousness that restrict the vibrancy of the crop. And so it's just wonderful to know that we get an opportunity to reharvest, to replant and reharvest. That's the nature of And it's such a powerful metaphor. So this week I wanted to use the, the uh, parable of the, the mustard seed. 
And, and I know that uh, some people have asked me, uh, some, one of the references that has really guided me in all this has been a book by Irvin Seal called Learn to Live, and it's about interpreting the parables. And that has been a great inspiration for me, and I'm going to share with you some of this, uh, and we've ordered copies, I don't think they're in yet, but they'll be in the bookstore shortly. But the parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. And Urban Seal says this, the truth about the mustard seed symbolism is simply this, that a great and wonderful power is involved in something which by outward appearance is very small and insignificant. The power and the wisdom that are locked up inside the mustard seed, or any seed for that matter, are by no means small, weak, or insignificant. Our impression and understanding of a seed is not to be measured by its appearance. What is outwardly insignificant may be of great magnitude inwardly. And this is the lesson of the mustard seed. But the mustard seed really cautions us, don't judge a book by its... You all know that one, see? And, and it also, so what it's telling us is don't underestimate ourselves, which I think is very easy to do. Don't us underestimate ourselves. I mean, we certainly underestimate others when we're out in the world. I mean, that's been my experience. Part of my spiritual practice is to stop doing that because it's so easy to do with somebody else's agenda. I know what their problem is. As I've heard it said, you spot it, you got it. Oh, wait a minute. I'm seeing it there. Hmm, where is it alive in me? And so this is really about, this is really about growing deeper faith in a way that I think really has to be practical and, and work in our lives. You know, our, our whole teaching, everything that we come together and do on a Sunday is around this idea of reconnecting to spirit. Is reconnecting to spirit, growing this bigger idea of faith, the stepping into the consciousness. When we do a prayer here, you'll hear it in the first 20, 30 seconds. There's one life. That life is spirit's life. That life is God's life. That life is the infinite presence and intelligence that we are immersed in. Someone asked me, they were here for the first time, I wanted to know how we interpreted God. And I said, we interpret God as a principle. It's a vibration. It's an intelligence. We are immersed in God. We are swimming in the sea of God. And yet... When we're living in separation, it's very easy to say that's not true. Our life's not working. All of our lives are working at the level of consciousness. The, the infinite can only do for us what the infinite can do through us. And if the pathway of consciousness isn't clearly defined in a way that allows a new experience to happen, then we'll have what we had before. And so then the opportunity is not to say, geez, I've gotten tares in my wheat field, but to say, hmm, I'm further along in awareness. We are closer than we think. We are closer than we think. In the, in the parable of the mustard seed, this was from, well, it, it's written in three places in the gospel. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But if you go further along in the, in the gospel of Matthew... You'll find, um, and now Matthew was Jewish. Matthew was a Jew writing in the time, and I think it was around 50 or 60 years after Jesus had, had, had died. 
But his whole agenda was, in his mind, was Jesus was the new Moses. He very much wanted to tailor his narrative so that people of the Jewish faith could understand he was the Messiah. And, and so he found ways to convey the story in ways that lined up with Moses. Because Moses really was their, the Savior. He led people out of darkness. He represents that moving into... And, and for us, it's the metaphor of moving out of that restriction. It's moving out of hell into to greater freedom. But Matthew's agenda was really to align Jesus in many ways and the things he wrote about with the life of Moses. And that's in Bishop Spung's work, and it's brilliant. So if, you haven't, if you're interested more, Bishop Spung's book on uh, rescuing the Bible from fundamentalism. He articulates it beautifully. It's a wonderful book. So Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, which Matthew talks about. And Transfiguration, interestingly enough, was the experience when he's on the mountain and the disciples waited for him, but they could see him. And Moses and Elijah appeared. Two great prophets from the Old Testament appeared. And so once again, it's part of the narrative that aligns Jesus with this consciousness and this tradition. But when he came down, there's a man that came up to him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and off into water. And I brought him to thy disciples. And he says to him, hey, I took him to your guys. You know, those Peter and those other fellows over there. And they could not cure him. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. In other words, what, you know, don't you guys get this? How, long, you know, how, long, how many times do I have to tell you? Bring him over here. And so Jesus rebu- rebuked the devil. Now last week I talked about the devil. You missed it if you were in here, but you can buy a CD in the uh, bookstore. <laughs> rebuked the devil. And he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Now the devil represents confusion, this discord. That's when we're in hell. We're suffering. We don't feel connected to anything or anyone. We just don't have... We, oh, man, I just, this life is just overwhelming. It's that state of... It, it is confusion. And, then the, and we can spin in that. It's a, it's a mindset. It is, it is a, a mindset of... of uh, as it would say in the parables, where we're, we're trying to plant seeds on rocky soil. And so spiritual, hopefully our spiritual practice brings us in alignment with that. So anyway, Jesus did this, worked with this young man. He came and said, I need affirmative prayer. And Jesus said, well, my disciples couldn't help you. Huh? Bring him over. I'll see him at 2.30 on Tuesday. Bring him in. Then came the disciple to Jesus apart and said, why could we not do this? Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith of a grain of mustard seed, Ye shall say unto the mountains, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. And nothing shall be impossible unto you, the faith of a mustard seed. I shared the story earlier that uh, these two fellows, let's say Pat and Mike. I used Brown and, and Tom for the first go around, but it was Pat and Mike. And Pat and Mike go to this great faith healer comes to town. And so Pat wants to go because he has this horrible stutter. And Mike has this, this bad leg. It never really grew all the way it should. He always uses a crutch to, to walk with. So they go and this fellow's preaching and he's preaching up a storm and everybody's excited and there's just a vibrancy and they got all this great music going and, he's, and people are coming up to the stage and he's putting his hands on them and they're falling down and passing out and then people are carrying them back off to their chairs. And it's just building and building and building and it's finally Pat and Mike are in the back. They can't take it anymore. So they, they, go, they both go up front and they get up to the, to the platform and the preacher says, and how can I help you? And, he, and, and um, Pat says, well, I, 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 I have a t- 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 terrible st- stutter. 
and he says, come on up here. And then he says to Mike, he says, come on up here. And he says, we'll heal that leg for you. And so Mike comes up this platform, and they both get up. And the minister puts his hand over Pat's mouth, and he puts his hand on Mike's leg, and he's praying and praying and praying. And he says, now I want you fellows to go back behind that screen, and we're going to keep praying for you. And I want you to do everything I tell you. And so everyone's praying in the whole auditorium for Pat and Mike, and, and Mike's back there with his crutch, and he says, Mike, I want you to take that crutch and just throw it over the screen. Throw it out here. And he throws the, the crutch over the screen, and it lands, and everybody cheers. A big roar goes up. And he says, and now, Pat, say something. And Pat says, Mike fell down. <laughs> this is the story of what Jesus was talking about with the lunatic. It's the same thing. Why didn't the healing take place? And Erwin and Seal in this book, in, in uh, Learn to Live, talks about it. He said that, you know, as, as practitioners, people come to us and say, I'd like prayer support. And that's a wonderful thing because you have agreement. As it says in Scripture, where two or more are in agreement, it is done. And so as a practitioner, all you have to, as a practitioner, you just listen to the story and say, Would, can I support you and how can I support you? And, and listen to that inner voice as well and let that guide you in your affirmative prayer. But there's agreement. But when you have someone that is completely out of their mind, as Erwin Seal says, you have to carry the whole consciousness yourself. And he says, it requires a master consciousness. He says, Seal says, therefore, you must lift his whole weight by yourself. It's like this in mental healing. A healer who can get no cooperation from the conscious mind, whatever, must bear the total weight of the sick person psychically. We bear one another's burdens whenever we undertake to show the truth of one another. It calls for great clarity and strength of thought. What Jesus of Nazareth did is he demonstrated his, his understanding of who he was and whose he is. And, and so what he brought was his clarity of consciousness. He brought clarity. So he looked at this young man and he could see the brilliance. He could see the genius. He could see the health. And he brought that vision. And it was so clear for him that the shift and change could take place. And so that is part of what inspired Ernest Holmes when he started to read Scripture. He read the Bible every day. But he realized there's something available here for all of us. And that's why affirmative prayers, we grow in the art of it. And it's an evolution for all of us in our prayer work. But it is you show up with the clarity. You show up clear. You're a gift wherever you go. If you've done your healing work and your forgiveness work, and that's a daily thing to do, You know, an interesting thing about this community, we look around here. Now, I don't know, there's probably a, close to 200 people here, and we had close to 200 people at the first service today. But when we talk about the mustard seed, this, this whole thing started with about eight people. Eight to 12 people. 20, 30 years ago, the idea started to, something emerged that said, you know, we would like to have a community that teach these principles. It started with about eight, maybe a dozen. You know, there were about, I don't know, but there were less than 100 people involved with the purchasing of this facility. I think it was closer to 50 myself, because by the time the smoke cleared and the ones that got scared because they were going to take on a mortgage that went out the door, I said, you guys are nuts. But the ones that cared deeply about it stayed. And so when I, every time I walk in here, I'm grateful for that legacy. I'm grateful that someone said, those 8 to 12 people, said, man, we want this. We want this. 
I was raised in a Christian tradition. I feel so blessed to be able to weave this into and to have this information in my life. And so that I can live a clearer experience, so that I can honor the legacy of those that are precious to me. The people that decided, we want this teaching, we want, and we want to nurture and grow this. And it's an ongoing process for all of us. We are all works in progress. That's a wonderful thing. In this wonderful book that I, I quoted the number of times that, that Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven, it's by a Episcopalian minister by the name of John Sanford. And I've had this book when I was in ministerial training. I found it one day. I said, oh, this is great stuff. I'm never going to talk about Jesus, but it's good, it's good stuff to have in case I get kidnapped by a pack of Christians going to Sunday school one day and they want to see if I have enough evidence to prove I am one. Well, that's a, good, that's a good question for all of us. If you got pulled over by the RCMP on the way home today, and they said, why, and you say, why are you arresting me? And they say, well, we understand that you're a member of the Center for Spiritual Living. Would there be enough evidence for those guys to convict you and lock you up or not? There would be for me. I have my, my membership card in my wallet. All myths have their origin in the striving of the psyche to express in mythological form the deepest human spiritual and psychological truths and strivings. Let me repeat that. I said it really fast. This man is a Jungian analyst and therapist, as well as an Episcopalian priest, and I love this. All myths have their origin in the striving of the psyche, our deepest part of ourselves, our psyche, to express in mythological form the deepest human spiritual and psychological truths and strivings. So we make up stories to make sense of this. This is where the myths come from. Joseph Campbell was brilliant in his articulation of this. So we, can't, we have come up with this anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic means it's, it's in human form of, of what God looks like and what the devil is. Because we need to figure it out. We've got to have something to hang our consciousness on. But those are metaphors. Those are examples. And, what, and, and see, Jesus, when he taught, he wasn't in this world. He was in a different mindset. When he was talking about these, these mindsets of the field, he was in the mindset of oneness the majority of time. And you can hear it in what he says. Sometimes he says, those that see me see the Father. Other times he said, it's not I but the Father within that doeth the work. But what he was articulating was this very thing, grounded in the truth of his being. But he understood he was not the healer. People called him the healer. He was the vehicle for the clarity to be revealed. The clarity that lives within you and lives within me, that lives in every one of us. That's why he said, these things I have done, you shall do an even greater. And see, we have to look for evidence to support that because the world is so chaotic at times. Most people are living in hell. It's easy to look out in the world and say, it's not happening. It is happening. It's always been happening. And so uh, John Sanford continues... He said, the parallel between the story of Jesus' birth and death and the stories of those dying and rising gods of Eastern Mediterranean that existed in mythology prior to Christ. See, his story is not a new story. And I'm not sharing this with you to discount the story. I'm sharing this with you to understand how precious the story is for our psyche, for our, 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 for our sensibility so that we can make sense of this and we can find the, the gold in it and we can grab onto that and say, that's for me. See, well, I, want to live, I want to live the Christ-like life, which is I'm grounded in this. And so I'm not, I'm not going to judge the book by its cover. Um, my, my opportunity here is to see the divine in all of it. 
But when I start to spin into the story, Jesus said, be in the world, but not of the world. He was in the world, but he wasn't captured by the world. This can be seen, for instance, okay, so he says, he continues, these Mediterranean mythological stories, they come from Odonis, they come from Tammuz, they come from Osiris, they come from Attis, and others have many things in common with Christ. All these pagan deities are closely associated with the mother. All are the gods of healing and salvation. All die an early and untimely death and then rise again. All are worshipped by their followers on their respective Good Fridays. The resurrections are all celebrated with great festivities. They also die on the tree. That is, their death is closely associated with a tree, a wooden casket, or some other symbol of the great mother to whom they are closely tied. But Christ also enjoys a unique relationship to the mother goddess represented in the Virgin Mary. He, too, is a bestower of healing and blessing. He, too, dies the early death and rises again and is worshipped with festivities on Good Friday and Easter. He, too, dies on the tree of the cross. And, in fact, in the first centuries of Christianity, the cross was almost invariably referred to by the fathers of the church as the tree. So it's not hard to see the parallels between pagan myths and the Christian story, which shows that the cleavage between the two is unnatural. See, it's the evolution of consciousness. So we started out having these pagan myths, and then all of a sudden this amazing teacher and this amazing consciousness came along and started to prove the theories. And people would come to him that were having trouble, and he would, just by his clarity, he would be able to see the perfection and things that would be transformed. And, and, and now our opportunity in giving birth to the new consciousness is understanding this is not the great exception. It's a great example of what's possible for us. And so we get to read in his story, the story of his life, his, trial, his trials and tribulations that brought him to the clarity. And the only way we awaken the clarity, the only way that we awaken to that, 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 that pristine oneness over and over and over again is to continue to look at what's going on in our lives and say, oh, this is for me too. There's something alive here. As I said, you spot it, you got it. You spot it, you got it. So, Seal says this about this healing that took place with the lunatic. When, the, when his disciples couldn't do it, he says, It takes the master consciousness, which has just descended from communion and identification with the divine to heal the lunatic. It takes the kind of consciousness which is so identified with universals that it is unconcerned with particulars. doesn't matter what the story is. This is what I'm here to do. There is nothing, there is nothing but the divine expressing in and through and as you. This is my knowing, this is my clarity, this is my certainty. To such a mind, the facts of a situation neither depress nor stimulate. Its strength and its elevation come from consideration of the principle of life rather than the appearance of life. Such a mind's whole mode of thinking and action is based on the rule, judge not according to appearances, but judge righteous judgment according to principle. And the principle is is that God is all there is. Such a mind maintains its independence of facts and circumstances and its leverage over them. Ordinary minds judge by appearances, and that is why they often mistake the lesson of the mustard seed. The ordinary mind is impressed by the sensations that come to it through the outer senses. The ordinary mind. So when you find yourself impressed by what's coming to you, it's just you're thinking from the ordinary mind. And there's nothing wrong thinking from the ordinary mind. It's, very, it, it's a good thing to do at times. It's appropriate. But when we start to spin, in our, when we start to, to, to fall into the gates of hell in our thinking, 
and we start to show up as the devil in our awareness, then if we don't have something to step us, ourselves out of that, if we don't have a, a, a touchstone to bring ourselves back, in Mark Nepo's book, The Book of Awakening, one of the stories this, in March is that one of the, a, a, a caveman is, is out hunting one day, and he steps on a twig and it snaps very loud, and he doesn't realize it, but there's a, a, there's a bear very close to him, and the bear hears it, rears up, and runs off. And he realize, the hunter realizes that this twig saved my life. So all of a sudden he t- picks the twig up and he realizes this, this twig is sacred. Without this twig I would have died and it becomes a symbol. But how many times have we had experiences in our lives where we, 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 we uh, get captured by the world of effects? The twig isn't sacred, the twig is just a twig. But I bet you there were traditions created around that twig when that happened. Because that's, that's our psyche. We're looking for something. We're looking for that, that touchstone, something to connect with. We get, we get caught up in the, in the situation. From the, we get caught up in the appearance of life rather than the principle of life. Well, I, I went to the business breakfast on Thursday, and Jim Yee was there, and he talked about retirement, and he was talking about the principles. And he did the seven habits of wealth, wealthy people. And I thought, I pulled it out this morning. I said, you know, all you have to do is change one or two words in each one of these, and it's the seven habits of spiritually awake individuals, is the way I would call it. But he said, you have to have three things in place first. Now, I'm not going to share the seven with you today, because I'm going to do it next week when you come back and bring a friend with you, okay? And let them know that we're doing our million-dollar raffle next week. (laughs) Giving away a dollar a year for the next one million years. I've got to read you another one of these. Just one sec. <laughs> you know, little people. That's the appropriate term for little, little people. It says, a little, a little person fortune teller who escaped from prison was a small medium at large. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> Time flies like an arrow, and fruit flies like a banana. Somebody writes, thinks of this stuff and writes it down. Atheism is a non-profit organization. Think that one over. They don't have a profit. Anyway. Back to Jimmy Yee. So Jimmy, Jimmy gives the seven, right? But he says they got the first three things happen. And he said life is like a ladder. This, this whole, and it, it is, financial ladder. It, and it, this relates to consciousness so clearly. And he said that the bottom, this is statistically now, the bottom 15%, there's 15% of the population are just barely surviving. Barely surviving. He said, then you go to the next group, and I call them, I I label them average, which is 55%. And 55% live from paycheck to paycheck. And there's a whole scale there. You could be at the top of 55, or you could be right above 15%. But live paycheck to paycheck, don't have anything really saved, don't own anything, no investments, no RSPs, they're just kind of in there. And then the next is the 27%. And he said, they're thriving. They know what they have. They know they, they've, got every, they've, they've got the things before them, and they've done really well managing. And he said, there's 3%, and those are what we would call just that, you know, incredible. I would call them exceptional. But the point is, he's talking about prosperity here. And what I think is, that relates to this is, is spiritually, the percentages of where we are. And I'll, give it, I'll get into the seven uh, areas that he said are, are crucial for this next, uh, next week. But the point is, is that, as Jim said, you, number one, it's attitude. You gotta, your attitude. You've got to check in and see your attitude. Number two is you've got to have a plan. What's your plan? And number three, action 
You've got to have an action in your life, and you've got to consistently repeat the action. And I thought, how appropriate for spiritual practice? How appropriate? Because if you believe, if I, if I were to believe what I was given as a child, the gift that I got spiritually as a child, I wouldn't even walk in the doors of this place. We weren't even allowed to go to another church in the archdiocese. We had to go to our church. And I just, isn't that interesting? I mean, it was, we almost had to go in and confess that we went to another church if we were on vacation. But to have a plan in your life. And what is your plan? What is your spiritual plan? I mean, if, if, in, if the inevitable plan were so strong and powerful for you based on where you are right now that in 10 years or in 5 years... Because what Jim says about all these percentages, when I say 27% are thriving, he said statistically... Now, this is economically, but statistically, 80% of the people that were in this group were not there 10 years ago. They weren't there. See, we don't live static lives. We live lives of opportunity to plant the seeds. As it says in this parable, he chose to plant the seed. He chose to plant this seed. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. So what seeds are you planning on planting? This is exciting stuff. This is good stuff. This is amazing stuff. This is what Dr. Ernest Holmes was talking about. See, he was so inspired by Scripture, but he read it from the perspective to understand the consciousness that, that this, teacher, uh, this teacher, this brilliant teacher, taught from. And he read it, and he read it, and he read it, and he was, a pro- he was a profound student of ancient wisdom, and he was a compiler of those things. I had a poem from David White. I'll share it next week. I get enough stuff to go till like 2.30 today, so I'll cut you a break. But David White says, and I think this is true, he says, it doesn't matter if you come from the Western literary tradition or you come from the Buddhist and the Hindu tradition of the East. He said, all of them point to the same thing. The rest of creation is waiting breathlessly for you to take your place. The rest of creation is waiting breathlessly for you to take your place. And I, and I know that the, the place that allows us to take our place is, is grounding ourselves in the eternal moment, which is right now. See, the eternal moment is not forever. The eternal moment is now, and it is beyond the bounds of time and space. And when you step into that practice through meditation, through affirmative prayer, through silence, how much silence have you had this week? Much quiet. Feel your heartbeat. The breath. You know, in the Hindu tradition, breath is Brahma. It's the breath of God. And I think David White's correct in his, his sharing. I'll expand on this next week. But he said, I think for all of us, this is my experience, we just have to keep doing the same things over and 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 over, and over, and over again until we really get tired of ourselves. To realize, you know what? I kept doing this and it's not changing. But that, that is, those are the tears. See, we don't want to throw it all away. It's e- and it's easy to judge ourselves and say, I don't deserve this because you know what? I did this. Or I did this. Or I did this. Don't you, that's what I love about the song that once in a while Brian sings, the Rumi poem. Come, come, whoever you are. Wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Rumi knew that. 
It's our nature. We don't want to be in this stuff. I just want to go back to sleep. I want to get intoxicated, either literally or figuratively. I want to dwell on something, some fantasy. I don't want to feel this. And Rumi just keeps saying, come, come on back, come on back, come on back. It doesn't matter if you've broken your vows a thousand times or more. It's not a train of despair. But for many people, they think it is a train of despair. Because we've been given dominion. The beauty of this, this beautiful, generous spirit that, that we live from and have, and our, is, it just says, you go for it. Name it whatever you want to name it. I was listening to a, some, a lecture by Dr. E. Ali Akala this week on, on, a, uh, on a CD someone gave me. And someone said, you know, and he's the one that does the blessing. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And someone said, you know, I don't know this love thing. I'm not good with love. I don't want to use the word love. And he goes, okay. Yeah, he says, I don't know what I love. You know, I don't, know, I don't, I don't feel connected to spirit because his whole thing is what you're saying is when you say I love you, you're saying I love you to spirit. When you say I'm sorry, you're saying I'm sorry because I forgot you were there. I forgot you were my life. I thought that you were, I forgot you were my source. I started to get caught up in the appearances of the world. It's exactly what these people are saying. It's exactly what Dr. Holmes taught. And so, and so Dr. E says, um, well, what word works for you? He says, well, I like joy. He says, well, use joy. I don't care what you use. Use something. He said, I'm just giving you the baseline. You don't like love? Use joy. He said, don't have a guru in your life. You are your guru. You need to listen. This is exactly the story of the teacher of Nazareth. Jesus was talking about. It is not I but the Father within that does the work. It was that vibration, that energy, that clarity of consciousness. And if you, know, you follow his example, he had to leave and come back. He had to pull himself out of it sometimes because if we stay in it, if we don't have the silence, if we don't have a spiritual practice in our lives, it's really easy to slide back into those ideas. And then we come into agreement. The one thing, the one, one of the seven I'll share with you that Jimmy Yee talked about in terms of financial practice is who are you hanging out with? Who are you hanging out with? Mary Manon Morrissey says it in Prosperity Plus. She said, look at the, your five closest friends. You make as much money on average as they do. Your five closest friends. So I've been writing letters to a lot of wealthy guys I know, so you have to be my closest friends. <laughs> but like attracts like. Birds of a feather flock together. You are here today. You are here today for a reason. We're here to, to celebrate not only the words, but the consciousness that we collectively represent to give birth to this. That's really why we're here. You won't remember 5% of what I said today. But if something has touched you deeply... Something has awoken in you that'll change you forever. It's precious. It's precious. And, and once, as the Bhagavad Gita said, spiritual insight is never wasted. Spiritual insight is never wasted. So our whole, my whole vision of this is that you come in here, whether it's through the music or the fellowship or the quiet or the prayer, or, the, or especially the consciousness, that you're supported in revealing more of that, the beauty you are. The universe is waiting for us to express who we truly are. And as David White said, and if we understand that everything that is going on is designed for that to happen, then everything is, we understand everything is for us. And so if, if it's just not working at all, then there's the gift. What must I become? What must I let go of? And what must I embrace to change this? What seed must I choose to plant? And then what must I get up every day what action can I take each and every day 
over and over again that allows that crop to, to spring forth. And so what I know in this moment for you and I know it for myself because there's no private good is that I'm ready, willing, and able to be more attentive and more aware that whatever is, is important for me to know this week as I move forward is made clear in my awareness. Through my dreams, through my thoughts, through my interaction with one another, I'm drawn to the right and perfect people, the right and perfect opportunities. That healing is in the twinkling of an eye. It is the shifting in consciousness to that state of grace, of beauty. And it's just a beautiful thing. It's wonderful to be able to have this conversation together. In so many ways. When Dr. E. Aliakala says, when you say I love you, and you really mean it, when you say I love you, it changes everything. I love you. Each and every one of us can find something in our lives right now that we can passionately say, I love you. I know you can. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I forgot who I am and whose I am. And I'm ready to step back into that grace and beauty right here and right now. Please forgive me for forgetting. Knowing it is done, thank you. So it is. They were standing in the balcony today, so...